leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. You have heard it that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. And it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false, solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged in the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it is God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of a great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, so everybody clear? We good? We know how to fulfill the law now, right? I mean, we, we know certain things, okay, probably don't murder people, don't commit adultery. Yes, those are good. But sometimes this passage can be a bit challenging. What exactly do we do to fulfill this law? What is our obligation here on this earth? Well, what we're focusing on today is a particular component of it, and it's what we do to reconcile with our brother or sister. Now, I know I'm supposed to be here to talk more about the law and fulfillment, but I want to start with a cautionary tale so that nobody has to go through what I did this week about the dangers of translation, okay? I understand now why some people want to look at the Bible and never look deeper and say, this is the word in my translation, that's what it means, and I never want to know more. I never want to find out what the context is or what maybe the history of this language was, and here's why. Because if you read older versions of this text, all they really tell you to do is go reconcile with your brother before going to the altar. The altar meaning essentially to judgment, to our death, right, to our maker. So I thought, fantastic. I only have one brother. We have a great relationship. We're very close. We've really reconciled anything and everything we need to. I can't think of a single thing that really comes between us right now. His family's right there in North Chicago. We go, we have fun with them on weekends. We drink some adult beverages, perhaps, things like that. I thought, easy, and just in case, it might still get a little challenging. Maybe there's something I'm forgetting that we need to reconcile. It gets better. He's only a half-brother. So I only have to reconcile half as much. So I'm thinking, we're good. Then I saw newer versions of this translation, brother and sister. Ooh, this gets complicated now. 
And it gets complicated for me because, unfortunately, as close as I am to my brother in Chicago, is both geographically and metaphorically as far as I am from my sister in Texas. We don't speak, really. We haven't spoken in a couple of years. We have one of those families where sometimes somebody casts themselves away a little bit, and a gulf forms, and there's a lot to be reconciled. Now I'm looking at this thinking, "Uh uh-oh, suddenly God is calling me to do something I'm really a bit afraid to do because I don't know how it's going to turn out. But it gets even worse. It gets even harder. You see, we often use brother and sister to, of course, describe a blood relative. But here, if you really look back at what most biblical scholars do interpreting this passage, it's not about blood relatives. It's not just about my brother who had the same father or the same mother or even was adopted. It's about our brothers and sisters in the sense of being children of God. It's our siblings as people. Now, this gets a lot harder. About the narrowest way I can possibly interpret what it means to have siblings as children of God is, well, maybe it's only people who have my same faith. Maybe that's what makes us siblings, is, that, is our belief. Well, then, you know, there's only 12 and a half million United Methodists. How big a challenge is that to reconcile with all of them? Um, well, at the next general conference, we're probably going to find out. It seems like as a church, we have much to reconcile. And in fact, that's one of the silver linings, though, of the whole disaffiliation thing, which otherwise is, is very tough and challenging. That number is getting smaller. So there's fewer people for me to reconcile with. I should be happy, right? The problem is I don't really believe that. I think if somebody is a child of God, they're a child of God, whether they know it or not, whether they believe the same thing I do about it or not. And that means everybody created in God's image is my sibling, my brother and sister before the Lord, which means I have eight billion people with whom to reconcile. So through nothing more than translation, this task that the scripture tells me to do went from easy to uncomfortably challenging to utterly impossible. How could I possibly reconcile with eight billion people if that what I have to do to fulfill the law? Well, maybe, just maybe, it's worse than it sounds. Because what can I possibly have to reconcile with all of those people? Any of us in this life may live in a world with eight billion people, but we really only interact with maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. So one easy way out could be for us all to say, well, how many people could I really have something to reconcile with? Could I have done wrong to? Could I have a grudge with? Could I have hurt in my life? that I need to do something about? How could I have something to reconcile with random people on the other side of the world? And here's the problem, though. That sounds really good until we start thinking about who are those random people on the other side of the world. Well, if we were to start right here, drill a hole straight down, that then goes up after it goes through the center of the Earth, we'd end up basically in the Indian Ocean, almost into the the Arctic seas. Well, I start thinking about who's on that side of the world. Nobody I've ever met, but I know some things about them. For instance, there's a nation in that area called the Maldives, where about half a million of those random people on the other side of the world live. I've never met anybody from the Maldives in my life, but yet my life and theirs are intertwined. And they're intertwined because in the Maldives right now, there's a bit of a problem that I don't have. 
I have many things that go wrong at my home up in Bayside. We, you know, need to tile this and do that and tuck point this and redo the siding. One of the things I don't have to worry about, though, is that home being swallowed up by the ocean. People in the Maldives do. Unfortunately, because of my choices and many others, their entire homeland is basically sinking and will probably be gone within a few decades. And it has everything to do with choices I make every day for my own convenience. And it's not just the Maldives. I can look at the coffee I drink every morning and then the people who are exploited in South America or Central America or Africa to bring it to me. I love eating shrimp, good frozen shrimp. I love it. But you know what I don't love is the slave labor that's used to produce it in Thailand, which is mostly why we have cheap shrimp. Much of my life, and all of ours, tends to be based on convenience that is often founded on somebody else's exploitation or misery. The reality is, we have things to reconcile with much of the world, even though we may never personally interact with them. The so-called random person in the Maldives I've never met, granted, I have nothing to personally reconcile, like I might with my sister or someone else who I've personally wronged, but yet, if we both came to the altar and I said, hi, I'm Brady, how are you? I said, yes, hi, I'm such and such. Yes, we've never met, um, but I know that you did help destroy my home and that of my family and that of everybody I know, at which point I would have to realize something. That is, I placed my convenience in life over someone else's survival. I placed my present over other people's futures. And it's something many of us do every day without even thinking about it. The question of who we have to reconcile with is a question that is very apropos for us in the season of Epiphany. Because what the scripture is really getting down to in this first part of to whom do we reconcile is everybody. And the reason that's important is because most of those people are invisible to us. The whole reason we need to reconcile with them is because we often do wrong because we don't really think about it. And that's not just true of somebody on the other side of the world. Often it's in our relationships where we see somebody else as somehow lesser than us. Now, one of the very specific things Jesus gives us in this passage, in the translation we used, it's actually translated as the phrase, you idiot. The idea that says, don't call somebody you idiot. That's the thing that triggers having to reconcile. Well, that word originally is raka. So if you want to go with a really narrow interpretation of the scripture that gets you off the hook, has anyone ever called anyone a raka? Okay, I haven't either. You know, I think, and I, and I thought back to, um, well, basically all the times I've been on highways like I-43 in gridlock traffic, and there are various things happening that caused me to very quickly conclude in moments of great emotion that my driving skills were vastly superior to another particular driver's driving skills. I have said a wide variety of words in those circumstances. I have used really a, a, a vocabulary I am proud of, um, truly, that I will in no way share in this room. <laughs> but just, no, I'm really good at cussing, and I'm proud of that. But you know what? I've never used the word raka, ever. I have never in traffic said, you raka, ever. So am I good, right? Well, probably not, because again, when we go deeper, what we find out is the problem in calling somebody a raka is the same one as 
relying on exploiting some nameless person on the other side of the world. It's the idea that I'm more important than that person is. I'm better, I'm more advanced. The actual word raka basically is the idea of somebody being primitive. We might say, oh, you're like an ape. You are something, you're stupid, you're an idiot, whatever it is. The idea basically being, I'm more advanced, I'm more civilized, I'm more educated, there's something better about me than you. Well, if you think about it this way, if we have eight billion people who are our brothers and sisters, if we're exploiting even any one of them and thinking it really doesn't matter because we're more important, we're basically calling them Raka before God. We're saying, I'm better, they're not. The reality is that probably doesn't work very well. And in fact, it doesn't work very well, partially because we know that we have an equality before the Lord. And because we also know something else, and that's that one easy excuse for me to make for any wrong I do to another person doesn't actually work. I mean, my favorite excuse, and it might be one of yours too, for instance, let's take the Maldives and them sinking and the idea that I could go say to God, well, you know what, I drive a pretty efficient car. I don't take a lot of unnecessary trips. You know, I, I take climate stuff pretty seriously, more seriously maybe than a lot of people. Therefore, I'm really not the problem. You know, Lord, Exxon's the problem, even though I buy their gas. You know, somebody else is the problem. It's Hummer guy is the problem. And we do it in our personal relationships too. If my sister and I started to work to reconcile, I could easily blame her for all kinds of things. And she could probably blame me for all kinds of things too. When we blame one another, I think it causes God the same reaction it does me as a father when my two small children start saying, he started it, he started it, he hit me, he yelled at me. There's a point at which it just gets tiresome and you say, you know what, it doesn't matter. And God reached that point very, very early in scripture because I wasn't the first person to come up with that excuse of it's this other person's fault. The one who came up with that excuse was the first person. In the garden of Genesis, when Adam is caught red-handed after eating the fruit of life, what does he say? It's not my fault, it's Eve over here, she did it. What does Eve say? It's the snake over here who did it. By the way, a little aside here, the snake never makes an excuse. Have you ever noticed that about Genesis? The snake is the one of them who just owns up and says, yeah, yeah, deal with it. That's how quickly we as mankind made the comparison excuse. The idea that says, well, I, maybe I did wrong, but I didn't do as wrong as this other person. The altar Bibles we use have about 1,100 pages. That occurs on page three. Gives you an idea of how quickly we got there and how quickly God rejects it. Because what does he say back? Basically nothing. He doesn't even dignify it with an answer. He just says, well, because of what you've done, this is gonna happen. Eve, because of what you've done, this is going to happen to you. It doesn't matter what somebody else does. It matters what we do. Well, so how do we actually reconcile then? What does that really mean? Well, what God's telling us in this passage, what Jesus is telling us, first of all, is how not to do it. And how not to do it is to wait and simply go to the altar on our death and say, God, I'm sorry. I did this to somebody, and I'm sorry, and I atone. And I think there's a reason for this, why the altar imagery is used. We don't think a lot about what our altar really is, do we? Why it's here, what we do with it. In the modern Christian church, altars are symbolic. And here's the proof. If you look under here, this is all wood, by the way. For anyone who hasn't had to move this, I've moved it many times, it's really heavy. But it's solid wood. You see, altars used to be used, and historically are used, 
for burning things, for putting an offering on top, setting fire to it, often a lamb. Now, this doesn't work with wooden altars for obvious reasons. And if you walk into a church and you see a wooden altar, you kind of know, okay, that's not really for the original purpose. Sort of like walking into a house and seeing a wicker fireplace. Okay, that's, that's probably for aesthetics only. We do symbolic things on our altar. And yet everything that's symbolized for what we bring there has a commonality. And it tends to be things that we recognize came from God and that we're acknowledging or returning them to God. I mean, we have the cross to symbolize the sacrifice, the ultimate offering, the Lamb of God. We have the candles to symbolize the burning of the offering, but also the light of God. It doesn't come from us, it comes from God, and we return a portion of it. We have the Word, recognizing that we use it, we read it, but it's God's. He created it. And this scripture, the more I think about it, makes perfect sense. Because why would we bring to the altar something that God didn't give us? that does not need to be returned to him because he is not the source of it. And when we think about our conflicts, our grudges, our bad blood with others, God doesn't make those things. We do. We're the ones that sow conflict on this earth. We're the ones that sow war or suffering or exploitation. And what the scripture tells us is in order to reconcile, don't wait and just say, I'm sorry to God because it doesn't do any good. What we do at the altar isn't about making God feel better. It's not about healing that wound. But in this life, if we see somebody else as our equal, our brother, our sister, and it gives us the courage to go to them, to admit our mistakes, even if they've made some too, and say, you know what? I did something I shouldn't with you. I I didn't think of you before I thought of myself. We have the power to heal people in this world, in this life. And that's a very, very special power. But in order to use it, as we say in the season of Epiphany, we have to see. We have to see who that person really is and that they are just as much a child of God as we are. Much of the passage that we read this morning is very much about that. It can be challenging because we look at it and say, okay, why are we talking about adultery and murder and divorces and all of these things? But there's a commonality to all of them, just like there's a commonality to what goes on our altar. And the connection is... They're all areas in which we really love to say that we're better than somebody else or more moral, where we quantify sin. What better example than something like murder, where God says, yeah, we all know everybody understands murder is a sin, but do you understand that not caring about somebody else's life is just as great a sin? That hating them, just like a murderer would, is just as great a sin? And I say just as great for one simple reason. It's because God doesn't quantify sin at all. The whole idea is it's qualitative. We're either doing it or we're not. And it's seeing the fallacy of of that comparison where we want to say, well, maybe I've done some wrong, but, you know, at least I'm not one of those adulterers. At least I'm not one of those murderers. At least I'm not doing this kind of divorce or this kind of immorality. But it's the reality that the fulfillment of the law comes only in God's grace in Jesus. Our job is about how we can heal others in our world. That's what we can hope to do. And if we see them, we have that capability to do it. We don't take our grudges, our vendettas, our wrongs to the altar because they have no place there. We take them to each other. We take them to that person we have wronged so that we can sow peace. And the opportunities can be difficult to spot 
When we think about the big picture of the world, whether it's the Maldives or Thailand or any of these places where so much exploitation has occurred because of decisions from people like me, I don't have the power to instantly go across the world and start atoning to everybody. It wouldn't be very efficient, amongst other things. It's just too big. But what I can do is once I see that I have a wrong to right, once I see the harm I've caused, and I see the reasons that I must reconcile with that person, then it opens my eyes to opportunities that God puts in front of me. And he always does. But I've got to be able to look for them. In our season of Epiphany here, if we could say one thing about what does it take for us to fulfill the law in the new covenant, in what Christ asks us to do, perhaps it really is nothing more than simply seeing other people the same way we hope that they see us. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.